0: Good evening, Saturday night. Good evening. You know, you guys need to up your game. The 11:15 service—they sing with that song every single time, especially this little section right here. You guys need to like break out in time. Uh, to those of you that ignored me at the fair on Thursday night, God bless your hearts. Um, <laughs> I am a raging introvert, and there are people walking past, and I just appreciated the people from Christ the King that like, just did the little wave and kept on walking instead of like every, having to stop every six feet to have a full-blown conversation. My wife said to say thanks to the church because we actually made it all the way through the animals in less than an hour. That was a record this year. <laughs> If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here, Christ the King. We've been doing a series on the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 20. Next weekend we'll do 21 and the first part of 22. And then we will summarize the entire thing on Labor Day weekend. I used to argue with my grandpa about an unusual topic. My grandfather went to his grave believing the earth was flat. Now before you judge my grandfather's intelligence... Unless you can speak nine languages fluently and be able to change between them on a dime, he was not an unintelligent man. He just had a conviction about the fact that he thought the earth was flat. I remember him saying, when I would try to convince him otherwise, he would say, Grant, when I was a little boy in Poland, I would look at the railroad tracks. They were flat. He would say that to me. And I would try to persuade him as much as I could to try, I would try to explain to him that, well, Grandpa, the reason they actually disappeared over the horizon is because the earth is round. In fact, we went so far one year as we actually purchased my grandfather a globe so that he could see that the world was round. And I remember, he opened it and he looked at it and he looked at our family and said, get this evolution crap out of my house. I mean, we we all have stuff we like to argue about, true? I mean, it's true, right? We argue, right? Democrat versus Republican, Ford versus Chevy, Netflix versus cable, Apple versus PC, Seahawks versus Broncos, Kimmel versus Conan, the Seattle Mariners against any little league team in the country with a bullpen, (laughs) right? And around and around and around and around we go. Well, believe it or not, we've actually come to one of the chapters that creates most of a large degree of the controversy when it comes to the most controversial book in the Bible. And as we head into this area of Scripture, we're going to hear some of the arguments about it. Now, earlier this year, or in the series, I held up a great big sign that said, I'm a follower of Jesus. And down in the corner was a little tiny paper that held my eschatological view of being pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. And I begged you, I said, please don't let this become the fixation point of our study of the book of Revelation. Don't let our chronology chart or our personal opinion actually, you know, shred all of these different ideas because there are people on all different perspectives who love Jesus they just may hold a different opinion. Okay, So I already picked my side, but instead of trying to convince you that I'm right, I hope instead, again this weekend, to point us all towards Jesus, because the reality is his opinion is the only opinion that matters, because he's the one at the center of the book of Revelation, and about that, at Christ the King Church, there is no argument. Okay, Jesus is in the center of everything. So last week, Jesus returned as a warrior on a white horse. Okay, You didn't miss it like the fact that he came back. You just missed Revelation 19 if you were here, okay? It hasn't happened quite yet. He came back and he dealt with the Antichrist and the false prophet. And if you missed last week, you should go back. Otherwise, you're going to be somewhat lost this week, but I'll try to catch you up. Revelation chapter 20 continues with this unbelievable language. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Let's refresh. This is the apostle John. On the island of Patmos, being visited, and he's been given a series of apocalyptic visions that are pointing us in the direction of what's going to happen at the end of the world. I saw, so John saw, an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. You may want to underline those words. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years, you may want to underline that, were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. There it is again. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for how long? Thousand years. In this passage, the Bible keeps repeating a phrase over and over and over again, and the phrase is a thousand years. You just kept saying it with me, okay? The Latin word for a thousand years is millennium, okay? Some Star Wars fan just woke up and said, Millennium Falcon? What? Where's Han Solo and Chewbacca? Okay? It has nothing to do with this, but now you know where they ripped it off from, okay? That's what it means. Thousand years in Latin, okay? Okay? The Bible describes and defines the millennium as a thousand-year period of God's kingdom, okay? Thousand years of God's kingdom where peace, justice, and restoration rule the day. We're going to talk about that thousand-year period this week, and we're going to roll it into the rest of eternity next week. If you want to see whether or not I'm lying to you, you can check out Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, and the rest of Revelation Twenty. In a nutshell, the millennium is a reward for God's people, and it's the restoration of God's kingdom on earth. Some of you have been praying for the millennium. Most of your life you just didn't realize what you were saying. Say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into king- temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory, forever and ever, amen. How many of you learned it that way? How many of you learned it with the word sins? Okay. Ah, oh, we figured out who some of the Canadians were in the room, yeah. <laughs> we did it different in the Queen's English when I was growing up, and I still trip up on it every single time, Okay. Some of you are asking, what's the big deal? Didn't you hear what you said? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Now, we've been praying that practically because we want God's kingdom to come now, right? In fact, God's kingdom is here in one form because the church is here. But the reason this is a big deal is because you've been asking for his kingdom to come for 2,000 plus years. Believers have been praying. Jesus taught us to pray That his kingdom was to come. Now, this is where it gets crazy, and this is where the arguing starts. Because people look at this thousand-year period and they start going, Well, how in the world does this line up with everything else we've learned? Here's three common views about the millennium, okay? Number one, premillennialism. You can pray my mouth works this week, okay? Premillennialism, okay? And this is a belief that Jesus returns before the millennium. Hence the word pre, right? Makes sense, okay? This is a common view that Jesus raptures his church, takes his church out of the earthly scenario and to heaven where they participate in the reward seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. We learned that two weeks ago. The tribulation happens here on earth, seven year period starts off, three and a half years of actually fairly good stuff, then everything goes crazy from that and culminates in this amazing battle called Armageddon, so then happens the end of the tribulation, and then at the end of the tribulation, if you are a premillennial viewpoint holder, you believe that Jesus returns. It's the second coming of Christ, and He comes to reestablish His kingdom on earth for a thousand years, and those who love God rule and reign with Him in His perfected creation, okay? If you're a follower of Christ, that's good news. I mean, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back, rider on a white horse, He wins, brings with him those of us who've gone before and we get to rule and reign with Jesus on this earth until he decides that this place isn't good enough and then he gives us an upgrade that's come next week okay that's premillennialism another viewpoint postmillennialism okay another group of people love Jesus very much they believe Jesus returns after the millennium okay it's another view the church they the, these people would believe that the church us right now are ushering in a period of peace for a thousand years. And at the end of that period, Jesus returns to defeat Satan and rule forever. So they just put the location of Jesus' return instead of at the beginning of the thousand, they put it at the end, hence the term postmillennialism, okay? Then there's another group of people that hold to a, a position called amillennialism or amillennialism, depending on how you want to pronounce it, okay? If someone is amoral, they are without morals, right? If someone is agnostic, they're without a belief in God. If someone is amillennial, it would go then that they would believe that there is no literal thousand-year rule of Christ. In fact, they would believe this. They would believe that the millennium is symbolic in Scripture. Okay, it's figurative, it's not literal. In fact, they would go so far as to say this is happening right now in the hearts of all believers, and we will culminate with the second coming of Christ. I'm down with all the different viewpoints. I'm like, I can understand all of them. I do would have to say this to my all-millennial friends. If this is as good as it gets, that is somewhat disappointing to me. I'm just saying, right? Okay? Now, here's the important thing, okay? There are Bible-believing, Jesus-following, with verses in hand, Christians in each one of these three positions. So let me throw in some wisdom that we have been using all the way along this journey through Revelation. It's fun to debate the millennium. That's cool, right? It's a sin to divide over the millennium. It's a sin when this divides us as a family. I mean, tragically, entire denominations have been set up over this little section of verses in Revelation chapter 20, like entire denominations. So let me just go on record and say this to you. You are welcome to hold any position you want to on the millennium. But for the love of God, don't let it divide the family of God. I mean, one of my closest friends here in town serves in a church and his denomination traditionally holds to the position of amillennialism. We were talking about this just a couple of weeks ago. And the thought that that would divide our brotherhood, that's just plain ridiculous. That we would choose to not have fellowship with each other because we look at seven verses in Revelation chapter 20 from two different perspectives. It doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, can we be honest? Christians have perfected the art of, let's just separate and see how that works for us. Let me ask you a question, how's that working for us? Probably not very good, right? If you want to know, I would argue for premillennialism, I would, if we had to have a theological debate. If we wanted to go around the circle, because we had an hour to waste, which I don't think either one of us do, but that's probably where I would argue. But let me summarize it for everybody. Here's what I don't know for certain from Revelation 20. Here's what I don't know for certain. I don't know which position is right. I don't know which one is exactly right. And neither do you. Some of you are like, yes, I do. No, you don't. Like, yes, I do. No, you don't. I'm like, okay, you win. Feel better? Okay, now let's move on. That's what I don't know for certain. Which position is right? What do I know for certain from Revelation chapter 20? Let me lay it out for you. Here's what I know for certain. God is triumphant in his return. Whenever you want to put it on your chart. Okay, can I get an amen from Saturday night? God is triumphant in His return. He's victorious. He's sovereign. He's the winner. He is triumphant in His return. Now you'll notice, if you read Revelation 20, Satan always puts up resistance, right? Always has, always will. But ultimately, he does not prevail in Revelation chapter 20 because our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. That's why we actually sing the lyrics to that song here on a regular basis. God comes back and His first order of business is to place Satan under subjection. And I want you to notice something about this. Our God is so powerful, He doesn't even need to do it Himself. You get that? He sends an angel with a chain to wrap up Satan because our God is powerful and Satan is not as powerful. The Bible says the angel binds the dragon with a chain, throws him into a bottomless pit for a thousand years, and then he appoints all those who refuse the mark of the beast during the tribulation to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Now, does that mean those are the only people ruling and reigning? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians 4 and several of the different passages, it says that those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, which means if we're leaving, subsequently you could logic it out that we're going to at some point return. Okay? But ultimately, what matters most? God is triumphant in his return. He has dealt with the false prophet, he's dealt with the Antichrist, and now he has dealt with Satan himself at least for a thousand years. Okay? God's triumphant, which means this, secondly, that Satan is subordinate and ultimately defeated. I got an amen from Brother John in the front row, that was it. The enemy of your souls at the end of this book is defeated, and your God wins. The Bible tells us Revelation 20, starting in verse 7, what happens at the end of the thousand years. When the thousand years are over, verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison. I have to stop right there. Okay, if you've already got him, and you wrapped him in a chain, and you threw him in a bottomless pit, why in the world would you open the lid? My theological answer, I don't know. <laughs> but apparently it has something to do with the fact that when God deals with him, ultimately he wants to deal with him personally. We're going to see that next week, okay? When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Don't be freaked out by those two terms, okay? Okay. There is a literal translation of Gog and Magog, which is certain nations coming together under the leadership of Satan to war against God. There's also a figurative understanding of Gog and Magog. If you know your Old Testament really well, it's the name of the kid of some guy from way, 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 way back when. Ultimately, it's a picture of any evil force that would set itself up against God. So Satan gathers them for battle. The Bible continues, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore, and they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that He loves. He gives us a picture here of God's people in one place at one time being surrounded by these forces, and the Bible says, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Get this picture. The evil forces of the world gather for battle, and God says, enough. Poof. It's a dad saying, you don't pick on my kids. You think you've got my kids surrounded? You have no idea. I am all present. I am all powerful. I'm all knowing. I am everywhere. My children are never cornered. And I deal with you as I choose to deal with you. Don't you love the fact we serve a God that's like, wow, that looks like a dire situation. Poof. Didn't even break a holy sweat. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The reality is this, my friends. Revelation doesn't end well for Satan or for anyone who chooses to follow his prideful path. That's that, that that's revelation in a nutshell. I want to remind you, Satan's downfall comes because of a moment of pride. He actually believes that he can rule better than God. So with all the love that I can muster in my soul, please hear me when I say this. Anyone who refuses To take a knee to the God of Revelation 20 is guilty of the same pride of Satan. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but can I tell you something? It's so easy to be guilty of that kind of pride. I mean, we do it every time we believe that somehow we're the king or queen of our own universe. When we think we can actually do life better without God than we can with God, whenever we decide to rely on our own wisdom, we're guilty of exactly the same kind of pride. I became a follower of Jesus years ago. But I'll be honest with you. I struggle every single day giving God His rightful place, allowing Jesus to take His rightful place on the throne of my heart. It's a constant battle with my own pride because I actually think I know better. And I know you don't because you're the holy people of Saturday night, right? (laughs) But there are just so many moments when I'm just like, I actually think I I have a better plan, God. I'll say this, salvation is once and for all. That's Jesus' part. Submission is a constant challenge. That's our part. It's a constant challenge. Last week, we talked about the reward seat judgment for believers, when we're rewarded for everything that we got right, and Jesus covers everything that we got wrong. And we clearly said that we can use that covering as a motivation to live the way that God would have us to live, not for ourselves, but for His glory and His fame. Last week, I mentioned there are two judgments, okay? One is the reward seat of Christ. That's for believers who are being rewarded for what they did right in this physical body. But I said there was a second judgment. This one's tough. Here's number two. At the great white throne judgment, judgment is both certain, you may want to write that down, and it's final. This is it. This is when the justice side of God does what the justice side of God says He's going to do. He actually follows through. God is not a God of idle threats. He just speaks truth. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Earlier in this series, we talked about this, right? The Lamb's book of life. And everyone who has ever received Christ, their name has been transcribed in that book. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as was recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Can I say it for everybody? That is a sobering picture, is it not? And it brings me to an uncomfortable topic for many people. It's one that a lot of a lot of people like to dance around because it makes people uncomfortable. I fully expect this next couple of minutes is going to make some people uncomfortable. When you write me a letter, make sure you sign it at the bottom. According to the holy word of God, there are two eternal destinations. One is heaven that is filled with joy because the presence of God is there. And if you want to feel the presence of heaven, just a little snapshot of it, come next week and I will do my best to do it justice. The second eternal destination, as much as I may not like it, and would even choose to appeal it if I had an opportunity to, but that my Bible states very, very clearly is a place of torment, and the Bible has a name for it, it calls it hell. If you're trying to figure out if I'm just making it out on my own, you can read Revelation 20 or Matthew chapter 25, specifically verse 46. There are two destinations, one of joy, one of torment. One of unity, one of separation, one of reunion, the other of rejection, one of eternal love, and the other of eternal pain. And hell is a hotly debated topic right now. I will boil down my belief about the topic of hell as briefly and succinctly as I can. I believe that hell is hot and forever is a long time. And I believe... That God so hates the thought of you going there. That He would outrageously give you a way out. And that He would send His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so you didn't have to go there, but instead so that you could choose to spend eternity in heaven with Him. Choose that option. From the bottom of my heart, choose that option option. The Bible says that it is not God's will that any should perish. Not of, It says any. That's God's heart. That's what He wants more than anything. He doesn't want anyone to choose the option of torment. Let me give you a brief summary. At the end of history, according to Scripture, God's going to judge every single one of us. So you get to pick your judgment. And you can pick a judgment that ends in reward, or you can pick a judgment that ends in punishment. God has actually given you the will to decide that on your own. Reward or punishment, you get to pick. And just for the record, when judgment actually happens, I think this is important for us to know. Okay? When you get judged, I will not be on that committee. And when I get judged, you're not going to be on my committee either. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's it. It's a trinity, not a quartet. We need to be reminded of that fairly often. I've said this over and over again in the series. We're either going to be judged according to His grace or according to His justice. And that's your choice. Some of us are asking the question, Okay, how do I know for sure that I have chosen to be judged by His grace? How do I know that? Let's let the Bible answer it for itself with a couple of questions. Question number one, have you, have I put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Many people believe that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and said, it is finished, that he was talking about the fact that the battle between sin and death was over. He was. That was a part of it. But he was also saying, my work is finished. I have provided a way out of sin. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. No one gets to the Father except through me. Why? Because Jesus finished his job. It was done on the cross fully and completely. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. His resume was complete, immaculate, perfect. He did exactly what his dad had asked him to do. Why? To save you and me. In fact, put our faith in the finished work of Jesus. Romans chapter 10 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what scripture says. Romans 10 again, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Verse 11 from Romans 10, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That means at that judgment place, I will not have any moments when I'm staring at the floor. I will not have any moments when I will have to walk down this long, dejected aisle away from Jesus because I've chosen to meet him in his grace. Jesus comes and stands in front of me, in front of his father, and when God judges me, he looks at his son and says, Oh, Stephen Painter, you're with Jesus. We're good. Tim Linske, oh, you're with Jesus. You have his righteousness wrapped around you. I don't look at your old stuff. I look to every I don't look at what you did wrong. I look at everything my son did right. Billy Hansen, Matt Peach, Monique N- N- Newman, Ab- Larry Weaver, Rose Weaver, Bauma's, all of you together, Brother John. You will never be put to shame. Why? Because Jesus says, no, look, look, that's your father. We are co-heirs with Christ. This is a good book. (laughs) Verse 12, because there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you call on Jesus, you've been saved and you'll stand before Jesus at the reward seat and you'll not have to stand before him at the great white throne judgment. So if you've called on Jesus for your salvation, I believe there should be some proof of that, don't you? There should be some evidence. The Bible calls it fruit. Fruit. If I have a personal relationship with Jesus, something in me should have changed. Salvation, it's not a life insurance policy. In fact, I read my Bible, it's a call to come and die over and over again. Die to myself and live for Him. Here's the second question. So have I put my faith in the finished work of Christ, and is there any evidence of that faith in my work? Okay, now don't misunderstand me. This is not about works. The Bible says that. It's not about works lest any of you should start bragging about yourselves. No, it's the gift of God. That's the grace that He gives to each one of us. But the question is, is there any evidence of that decision? Like, How would I know that? Good question. Let me ask you a few more questions. Was I faithful in my worship? And I'm not asking you, did you sing the songs? I'm asking, was your entire life an offering of worship to the God that, you saved, that saved you? Is everything that you do a romance moment where, where we are crucified with Christ and we present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Was I faithful in my worship? Number two, was I faithful in my witness or using the language of last week or did I keep all the wedding invitations for myself? Was I faithful in my witness? Did I find, or did I call myself loving, but I didn't love enough people enough to, to share with them the cure for the common sin? Did I share Jesus in word and deed? Or did I look after myself and just spend my life moaning and complaining about the condition of the world? Was I faithful in my witness? Thirdly, was I victorious in the battle against sin? Did I wage war daily against sin that Jesus thought was important enough to die for? Did I struggle and press back, knowing I can't do it on my own? He has to do it for me. But did, did, I, in, did I enter into that, that divine cooperation with God and saying, I'm going to press back against this natural ability that I seem to have to sin and mess up? Did I wage war against that, or did I, did I slide, did I excuse, did I tolerate Did I rename it so that I could feel a little bit better about it? Or did I just plain ignore the sinful condition of my heart? Was I victorious in the battle against sin? And finally, here's one that I don't think a lot of us think about. Was I trusting when life hurt? Did I use my pain for God's glory? Or did I just become bitter and angry like everybody else? Did I embrace the refining power of suffering? Did I look to Jesus as my hope and my strength when life was just plain hard? If you look at those questions, was I faithful in my worship? The answer was yes, I believe I used my life as an act of worship for Jesus. I'll tell you something, the world noticed that. Was I faithful in my witness? Did I share the message of Jesus? I'll tell you something. If you answered yes, the world noticed that. If you answered the question, was I victorious in the battle against sin that warred itself against my soul? If your answer was, I did everything I could to wage war against that which Jesus died for, I promise you, the world noticed that. And finally, was I trusting when life hurt? If you were able to sing Amazing Grace when everything else ached, I promise you the world noticed that. And the Bible says when people see that evidence, their eyes go to us and then immediately bounce to heaven where they fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Never convinced my grandpa that the Earth was round. <laughs> I tried. We went around and around and around and around on the argument. You know, one thing that nobody could ever argue with the two uh, about the two of us was this basic fact that we loved each other. I loved my grandpa and my grandpa loved me. He and my grandma are the reason I'm here tonight because they prayed me into this microphone. And you know what? We can go around and around and around and around about this kind of stuff. Let's never leave any doubt that we love each other. Because the Bible says that they will know us by our love for one another. The world will notice that too. And let's realize that one day, all of the arguments will be gone. And it will be just me and Jesus Or you in Jesus, in His grace, or in His justice? Choose grace. Would you pray with me tonight? God, thank you for an interesting passage of Scripture. So much in here. Father, for the believers in the room, I pray that they would take a moment in your presence. And God, would they have confidence in this moment that they've placed their faith in the full and finished work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that instead of questions, that these would become prayers. That the followers of Jesus would leave today praying, God, make me faithful in my worship. God, make me faithful in my witness. God, allow me to be victorious over the battle that I wage against sin. And God, may I trust you more when life hurts. So Lord, for my brothers and sisters, I pray that these would be prayer requests. Lord, for those in the room who don't know if they have put their faith in the finished work of Jesus. I pray that they would hear these words again. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So Father, in the quietness of this moment, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I pray for those who are whispering right now, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I pray right now that they would believe in their heart That God raised him from the dead. And that they are receiving forgiveness for their sin. That their name is being written in the Lamb's book of life. And that they hold in their heart now the promise of eternity. God, we need the promise of heaven. We desperately need the promise of heaven. Lord, I thank you that your grace is what gives us that promise. So, Father, for those who are whispering right now, Jesus is Lord and believing in their heart that you raised him from the dead. Father, I pray that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that in this moment, right now, they are being saved. Nobody's looking around, every head bowed and every eye closed. If you whispered those words, Jesus is Lord, And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. My Bible says, "Your family. And I'd love to pray for you this week. If If you said those simple words, Jesus is Lord, and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you believe right now you're saved. I'd love to pray for you this week. Could you just slip your hand straight up in the air so that I can see it? God bless you. God bless you and you. God bless you. God bless you right here. God bless you. God bless you. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us a way out. Thank you for the promise of heaven. Thank you for, for intriguing passages of Scripture that make our minds spin. Lord, I thank you that you've given us a little glimpse of who you are tonight. And I thank you for these who've raised their hands. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that this would be the beginning of a journey that ultimately we will share for all of eternity. And we give you all of the hope and all of the glory and all of the praise. It's the God who will rule and reign. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people's name. Amen.